Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. Thank you again for pressing that play button and tuning in on the Oil & Gas Global Network. Um, three different major CEO surveys from January 22 highlighted cybersecurity as one of the top five concerns for CEOs. Now, that was before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And today, we're going to really dig into this issue with two industry experts. I'm really happy to be joined by Jacob Ansari, who is the security advocate for Shellman, where he studies emerging security issues, researches new threats, and provides briefings, trainings, and other information to his clients. Jacob has more than 20 years of experience in information security practice, including security assessment, forensic investigation, and as a CISO. I also have Grayson Taylor, who is a director at Shellman, where he leads the firm's SOC practice for the Southwest region, as well as the National Energy Services practice. As a client service, service delivery leader at Shellman, Grayson is responsible for assisting organizations and C-suite executives in telling their security and compliance story. So Jacob and Grayson, it is great to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it. The world has a lot going on uh, at the moment with uh, with the backdrop of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, cybersecurity has, has now never been more important or at the forefront of everyone's minds. I wonder if you could, uh, for a moment, kind of talk to us about what we should expect. Sure. Uh, so I, th I think it's uh, it's it's easy to maybe speculate about what some things are going to be like. It's harder to actually predict with accuracy. But what we've seen so far uh, is uh, a number of attacks largely attributable to the, the Russian security services, the Russian government, uh, on uh, either the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian businesses or Ukrainian-aligned entities, uh, even in neighboring countries, um, you know, Ukrainian entities... Uh, in the Baltic states, uh, some of these are you know, denial of service attacks against the Ministry of Defense or website defacements, uh, which are are I don't want to say harmless, right? But because they're they're part of the disinformation campaign, uh, but are relatively low grade sorts of attacks. Others are more severe. Uh, there are at least three strains of. Uh, what we call wiper malware making the rounds in in Ukraine and and nearby states, uh, and what I mean by that is that the malware gets installed on a particular computer because uh, the attacker was able to get into it, or the user of that computer clicked a malicious link or opened a, a hostile uh, email attachment or something like that, uh, and then the malware executes by. Uh, it, it, it essentially wiping the contents of the disk. It doesn't do like a full deletion, but it corrupts the sort of map of the disk, what we call the, the master boot record of the MBR, uh, such that uh, it, it's no longer able to sort of function correctly and, and find the operating system uh, and the files contained therein. And so if you've got something important on that computer, uh, that disk is, is kind of junk and, and it's going to be potentially difficult to recover it. 
Uh, in some cases, these are even masquerading as ransomware. Like, oh, pay this ransom and you'll get your, your stuff back. You know, click here to send us some Bitcoin or, or whatever. But they've already kind of junked it. And uh, that's, a, that's a ruse. Uh, there's also something I've been reading about. There's a what looks like a phishing campaign uh, that appears to be targeting uh, entities in Europe, people or organizations that seem to be involved in uh, like refugee aid. Uh, so looking at, at people who, who are interested in the flow of, of refugees coming out of Ukraine and into other parts of Europe or coordinating some of the logistics uh, involved in, in providing those people assistance. Uh, I haven't followed it all the way to understand uh, you know, w- w- who the operators are, who the threat actors are, or what the aims are, you can, I think, speculate. Mm. Um, but uh, th- that's something that's developing, you know, I think fairly quickly. And, and the, the sort of publicly available journalism is still sort of unfolding about what's happening there. Uh, so so there, there are a number of ugly kind of fronts going on in this in this aspect of the conflict. So it sounds like the methods are becoming more complex. We're seeing new forms of, of cyber attacks that maybe weren't as prevalent before. Uh Yes and no. Uh, Yes, in the sense that who the targets are and what happens uh, are getting more complex. There are more and more sort of aspects of things like disinformation uh, or who is being targeted or what is happening. Uh, So, you know, wiper malware is not new, but who it's attacking and, and, you know, to what end is Hmm. potentially new. If you can hobble, say, the Ministry of Defense as a as kind of softening the target up before an actual like military invasion, right? That's potentially advantageous, right? Or if you're going after, you know, uh, parties in Europe that are that are dealing with refugees, right? That's maybe a, a, a relatively new sort of kind of victim. But the techniques uh, are, aren't revolutionary, right? These are things that have happened in more sort of conventional kinds of ransomware, malware, phishing, uh, advanced threats uh, for really the last 10 years. Now, there is an increasing level of sophistication in sort of the engineering uh, of some of these malware pieces. Um, One of the uh, one of the strains of of, uh, wiper malware that we're seeing uh, that's been called uh, hermetic wiper uh, has a number of really sort of sophisticated qualities to it in terms of uh, how it masquerades as something legitimate, how it affects uh, the computers that it that it infects, um, how it, it attempts to evade detection, uh, how it's deployed and managed. Uh, you know, some things that are damaging and and vicious uh, are also very crude, uh, and and that happens right, even though it's it's not sort of clever uh, in its attack characteristics or, or kind of how it's used uh, can be very harmful. But this is also very, very slick. And some of the dates on the files, right, the when it appears to have been compiled and sort of packaged up and, and ready for, for misuse, uh, you know, date from late last year. So there's some speculation that this was either, you know, used in, in a prior sort of scenario that maybe we just aren't fully aware of yet. Uh, or whoever put it together has had it in the tank for a couple of months and was waiting for the right moment to strike. So yeah, let, you know, go ahead, Grace. I just wanted to, yep. to add on to that and maybe, you know, bring it to a higher level and 
what I see this uh, this situation in Ukraine is um, is telling us is um, you know cybersecurity attacks uh, have always been an issue, right? But I think now we're seeing that uh, the motivations are changing. Um, <clears throat> you know that that it is being talked about in a lot of ways as a weapon of war, and so. You know, historically, you might think of a cybersecurity attack as a little more personal to to your organization or to any organization. Whereas uh, now, you know, the the threats are coming from um, uh, are originating from places where you might not expect to have been a target previously. And you know, uh, apropos obviously of um, of the energy industry, oil and gas industry, um, that is a critical. Uh, industry for pretty much every, you know, every nation, uh, certainly, you know, our nation. And so um, simply being part of that, that industry uh, paints a larger target on your back, not just, um, you know, for those actors looking to have uh, personal gain, but uh, a, a much bigger uh, picture in terms of the motivations and why they're, they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, it seems like uh, the cybersecurity stuff is almost, you know, an additional branch of the military for these for these countries. And you got your army, your navy, and then you got your cybersecurity attack team um, to really go after the targets in a different way. Um, I've seen, I think, one of the ministers in Russia declared cyber war on the U.S. a couple of days ago. I think you had some one of the other Western European countries talking about declaring cyber war on Russia. And there's some finger pointing going back and forth. You know, be careful what you wish for. Cyber wars can become real wars. Um, but it, but it is it is interesting when you think about the energy industry. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that because you know our show is really focused on the energy sector. Um, maybe break down some of the major information security issues that the energy sector um, is is facing now. Sure. I, I think I think there are a couple of really interesting points that are that are germane to the energy industry. Right. One, uh, just to quickly kind of tie it back to the conflict uh, in Ukraine. Um, obviously, a number of energy companies are multinational and have business interests in Russia or Ukraine or neighboring countries uh, and so may end up connected to the, the sort of victim organizations or may themselves be victim organizations uh, or just may be uh, in the, the sort of vicinity of, of things that go wrong. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of the intention is to harm Ukraine, right? Or, or maybe uh, NATO uh, specific connected kind of entities that are, that are resisting kind of Russia's uh, incursion into Ukraine. Um, but these sorts of things, malware, ransomware, especially self-propagating stuff, uh, leak out inevitably, right? And they've been doing that uh, for now more than 10 years, right? The original sort of Stuxnet malware that was ostensibly developed by the United States and Israeli intelligence to stop Iranian nuclear uh, development is known to the world and widely researched and sort of broke new ground in many ways because it wasn't just confined to its original target. It got out, it spread, uh, and, and thus researchers got hold of some samples and evaluated it, right? So uh, inevitably, this sort of thing, you know, goes beyond its initial target. Uh, but moving beyond that, there are, I mean, there are other kinds of attacks that uh, can adversely affect the energy industry. And while 
the sort of way it plays out may be specific to the industry, uh, a lot of the kind of underlying, you know, guts of what goes into the attack affect every kind of organization. Uh, and the example I'm thinking of is, is the Colonial Pipeline uh, security incident from last year. Uh, and what I mean, what happened as best we can tell from the publicly available journalism again, right? Because I don't have any inside track on what happened at, at Colonial Pipeline, um, is not even that the ransomware attack that affected them uh, affected any of the pipeline technology itself. I'm I don't have any information that supports the idea that any pump or valve or controller mechanism for anything that effectuated the pipeline itself was was affected by ransomware. Um, it was just simply that the back office function was affected by ransomware, the kinds of IT network that every business has, right, where payroll and finance and accounting and billing took place. And that's actually what happened uh, was that the, the sort of accounting and billing and, and usage information was affected by ransomware, was unavailable to the organization. And they made a business decision to say, we can't tell who's consuming what product, right, that, that we transport via this pipeline, and we don't know how to bill people accordingly. And so we're going to shut the pipeline down until we can untangle that and figure it out. And, you know, that's, you know, I, th I think we, there's this notion in the mind of the public or people who are, you know, sort of vaguely watching these sorts of incidents that like, oh, Somebody, you know, the threat actor, wherever they s reside somewhere in the world, kind of, you know, turned the pipeline off. And that's not strictly true, but they got the organization to turn the pipeline off because they put them in a, in a problematic business position. Uh, and they did it by attacking the kind of network that everybody has. Yeah, that one. Boy, it seems so long ago that that happened. It was only a year ago. ago. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but, the, but it was one of the, one of the big stories that kind of got everyone's attention and I wonder if you think about the the role of the CEO. Um, obviously, CEOs were already thinking about cybersecurity, but if that if they didn't have their full attention, then it did after the the colonial incident. I wonder if you can think about the role of CEO now. How should they be thinking differently about cybersecurity and making their their uh, businesses safer? So this is this is the thing that I, I think security professionals have been saying for. I, I heard people saying at the beginning of my career more than 20 years ago, so it's at least that old, probably older, um, that security is not a bolt-on sort of thing. It's not a thing that you can add at the end. It needs to be done upfront and done correctly throughout sort of the life cycle. And I think the scope of that has uh, extended, you know, over the years in, in terms of good thinking, right? When, when I heard that 20 years ago, right, when I was much younger, um, uh, I was thinking, hey, before the IT team deploys a new web server or something like that, they should think about security as opposed to deploying some new web server and then going and fixing the problems later. And that's still true. And that still happens too little. Uh, but the, the thing is, you need to, as the CEO, incorporate information security, privacy, compliance, uh, incident response, disaster recovery kinds of questions into all of your strategic business uh, decisions and your security, uh, your CISO or your or your security officer or whatever title you give that person uh, needs to be a part of the team, no less than your CFO, right? Than your COO, than your 
chief counsel, then your your marketing team, uh, because uh, all of those decisions that you make, these are the kinds of businesses, business ventures we're going to be interested in. You know, this is the potential acquisition we're looking at. This is a new market we're considering. Uh, all of those things have information security implications, no less than technology or engineering or finance. Uh, and so if you're the CEO, you want to start thinking about how do we kind of make space at the table for, you know, not just that person, but that kind of agency to say, this is now going to I- increase the number of requirements we have to consider when we embark on a strategic business venture, right? This is how it's going to change the game. Like we're not going to be able to do projects or strategic directives the way we used to. We have to think about these things more fully, right? If I'm a CEO and I say, I want to go buy this other organization and incorporate them into my business. I mean, you're going to get somebody to do financial due diligence, right? Mm. And of course you would, and you're going to get somebody to maybe do some, some legal due diligence and you're going to, potentially get somebody to look at like their their sort of business reputation uh you know their presence in the media things like that and say is this a good is this a good look for our company but if you're not engaging your security team to say if we buy this company and we connect their stuff to our stuff have we just bought a whole bunch of new security vulnerabilities that Mm. are now our security vulnerabilities in the same way that their assets are now our assets uh you know and if we've bought a company that's you know, made essentially the strategic decision to underinvest in IT and information security and have, you know, ancient, creaky, vulnerable applications that will take many years of effort to sort of pay down the technical debt and correct all of the problems, uh, you know, but they did that essentially to goose their balance sheet and make it look <laughs> like they were really profitable because they had very few liabilities, then, you know, that guess what you just bought, right? Uh, so, so that's the kind of thinking that I think is very, it's a very difficult sort of, it's a very tough nut to crack, uh, because nobody wants to have the pace of business slowed down, right. Or have more things to worry about, or, you know, have that pesky security person, Mm. you know, jabber on about, you know, risks that don't make a lot of sense. But if you don't, then, you know, this, this stuff kind of happens. So how much of uh, of the work we're talking about here is sort of proactive versus reactive? Um, the way I'm, I'm hearing it is that there's there's a certain level of reactivity you have to have. You have to monitor the existing threats. You have to respond when an attack has been made. Um, if you are evaluating an acquisition, you've got to go in and evaluate their systems and their vulner- vulnerabilities. And then you also have the proactive part of it, which is uh, people like you that, that are looking out um, in the beyond to make sure that we can see and anticipate threats that might be coming in the future. Um, talk a little bit about how CEOs and leadership teams can, can handle that balance. Sure. So, so uh, you know, the old proverb about the uh, ounce of prevention and the pound of cure is, is absolutely true, but you can't sort of put all of your effort in, in prevention, right? Um, in many cases, you have already purchased the company, right? Or, or embarked on the business venture or developed the new thing and didn't have, you know, your, your information security effort as, as an equal sort of strategic player. Uh, and so now you have, you have stuff you have to worry about. You have, uh, you know, technical debt, uh, in a, in a situation that causes a lot of potential security issues, um, you know, or, or you have a, a, deeply kind of understaffed scenario uh, that that needs just a lot more brain power and effort to be able to protect the organization. So you have to think about 
both the proactivity, right? How do we plan for this effectively? And the reactivity, how do we monitor for threats? How do we prioritize sort of the, the biggest problems and deal with those first, right? Or maybe you don't even do that. Maybe you say, let's go deal with the things that we can fix with the resources we have um, and then ladder our way up into a situation where we have the resources to go fix the things that are, uh, you know, more substantive or, or uh, have, you know, sort of more deeply embedded qualities in the business, right? It's one thing to say, hey, the biggest problem is this vulnerable, uh, you know, application or, or data exchange we have with a business partner. Uh, let's fix that first. But then you go realize like, oh, that involves, you know, a massive amount of re-engineering or a massive amount of, uh, you know, technology investment uh, and and significant changes to the way that we interact with our business partners, right? You may look at that and say, let's go solve some easier problems first, right? And that's not mm. always the wrong choice. Um, so you, you definitely need both and you definitely need the kind of incident response and business continuity and disaster recovery plans uh, that you drill regularly uh, to be able to respond to a thing like a ransomware attack, uh, and, and uh, honestly, I think your, your risk calculus, particularly if you're in the energy industry is to consider if you're operating in an international space, right. Or you have international business partners that are critical to your operation. Uh, you know, what are the sort of geopolitical risks that you need to account for, uh, and how those might, uh, impact your business. Yeah, Grayson, I, I would ask you as one of the leaders of, of the uh, Shellman Energy Practice, you know, are the CISOs that you support, are they getting uh, the seat at the table that you guys feel like they really need to have at this point? You know, it depends. I, I think we're seeing it um, a lot more now. And, you know, that the surveys that you mentioned at the, the beginning of our conversation um, sort of proves that out, right? Uh, CEOs and, and other oil uh oil and gas executives are starting to realize that they have been a little too reactive as opposed to proactive in uh, managing information security threats and uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, obviously just in our industry, the, the CISO and uh, CTO, CIO, those are the folks that we talk to more often than not, right? And um, I think over the last couple of years, we've seen that they have become more involved in that executive leadership team, uh, more strategic, uh, you know, their role becomes more strategic because industry, the industry and organizations are starting to realize that you, you can't tack on security after you've done all, all the other things that you need to do. Uh, that security conversation has to start at the beginning and continue throughout the process when you're, you know, you're bringing on a new vendor or you're, you're taking on a new service line. And, and Jacob talked a lot about this as well. Um, you know, that vendor risk management has become uh, a pretty big deal just because there are so many more things that are, are becoming outsourced in the industry um, as technology advances and, uh, you know, uh, cloud environments are, are utilized a lot more for the provision of, of the services that, um, that the industry provides, uh, you know, supply chain management, not just in the logistics of, of getting, you know, oil from the ground to the end user, but uh, you know, the suppliers of information technology services uh, needs to be factored into, into the calculus when you're managing the risks of, of the supply chain. And obviously the oil and gas industry has quite an extensive 
supply chain, um, just given you know all the all the risks associated and all the all the various uh, types of energy being produced and, and how it's um, delivered to to end users and things like that. So we're seeing it a lot more. Uh, you know, I think we have a mandate to try and push that as much as possible and, and as fast as possible because you know the the folks who are interested in um, attacking from a from an information security perspective aren't waiting. So I think Grayson brings up some some really interesting points uh, that the energy industry has some advantages uh, because the energy industry knows all about supply chains and supply chain vulnerability and the energy industry knows all about disaster recovery uh, and and business continuity uh, and so I think y you can take some of those those lessons that that wisdom and translate some of that to how that applies to information systems, right? So there's a whole category of security risk around your software supply chain, right? Everybody's got it, right? Nobody writes all of their own code. You borrow from uh, other software components produced by somebody else. Uh, and if you follow the, the news of the, the log4j vulnerability, right, sometimes called log4shell, that was discovered in December, uh, and and created havoc for weeks. Uh, you know that that's a primo example of a software supply chain vulnerability, right? Many organizations mm. didn't even realize that they used pieces of software that maybe used pieces of software that used the log4j component, uh, and they were vulnerable and, and did not necessarily have the awareness that they were vulnerable. And in some cases, Maybe they had applications that were sort of sealed up in such a way that it wasn't easy for them to apply the software update, uh, even though uh, the Apache Software Foundation had that published relatively well. They published a fix, and then they discovered that the fix was also vulnerable, and they published the fix, and then that happened like two or three times in the course of a week. So, um, it, you know, e even, even a, a useful situation like that had some uh, troublesome qualities to it, right? But it, I think it highlighted very clearly... Uh, that there are supply chain risks in technology and software components, right? And we saw that, you know, this past end of the year with, with Log4j, and we saw that a year prior with SolarWinds, um, you know, all of which made New York Times headlines, for example. Uh, and so, but, but the energy sector maybe knows a thing or two about supply chains and can think expansively about that uh, in a way if they just sort of train their eye on their information systems um, that, that could give them some advantages. So what can energy sector companies do to protect themselves, you know, thinking beyond what you see most companies already already doing now, um, looking at the, the emerging threats around the world with uh, Russia and, and beyond, you know, what else can they be doing? I, I mean, I think I, I tend to go back to a lot of the basics. Um, you know, be aggressive about software updates, uh, you know, be aggressive about securing user accounts and remote access. Uh, you know, those are those are the primary means that attackers get into environments and then do something complex, uh, you know, or sophisticated or hard to get rid of. Uh, I mean, I think you have to invest in that sort of strategic level uh security visibility right and and influence uh in the whole business decision making process uh and then you have to invest in the basics 
uh, and then you have to invest in in the response, right? And I also think you, you know, like what we were saying earlier, you want a sort of broad perspective in your kind of risk assessment process, right? Not just the business risks and not even just the technology risks, but like how those things fit together. You know, again, I think there's a there's an element to uh, multinational companies, right? Or those who do business with big complex multinationals to say, what are the new geopolitical risks that we need to start accounting for in our information systems, right? Or what are the situations where maybe a technology risk that affects one of our suppliers or one of our business partners then has a downstream effect on us? Wow, well, thank you guys. This has been a great conversation. I've had Grayson Taylor and Jacob Ansari from Shellman um, sharing a lot of great advice for CEOs and leadership teams on how to beef up their cybersecurity. I appreciate the time today, guys. Thank you so much. Hey, and thank you again for listening, everybody. We'll be back again soon with some more great interviews. Don't forget to leave us a review. That would be nice at uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else that you access the podcasts. And until next time, have a great one. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.